Let's pray for our junior church workers. Good morning, if you have your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. We've just learned where that is in the Bible. I'll be down just a little bit. I want to welcome every single one of you here today. A beautiful, beautiful day. I don't know, it seems like this whole January thing is taking forever. Is it not? But you, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, I tell you what, you have made the right choice today to be together in the house of the Lord to lift up your voices in praise and to behold our God. Thank you, Pastor Aaron, for leading us and, and, uh, and Mike, just for beating on the box the entire time back there. I felt like we should have like had some place to like throw our change or something like that. <clears throat> Just a delightful, delightful time already in worship before the Lord. We have a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to um, bow our heads and pray. Just ask the Lord to open our eyes and our ears to hear and to see Him this morning. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, again, we're just grateful. that Your mercies are new today. And we thank you for sustaining us through another evening gathering us together and allowing our focus to be on you. Father, we're thrilled with your word that you have given to us. It's perfect and, and powerful. Father, I pray for people that are here today, particularly those that are going through difficult struggles, physical illness, discouragement. Father, I pray, I think this morning, especially of, of Margie, Miller with the loss of her mom Ruth this past week. I just pray you would surround her and her family with love and comfort. We thank you, Lord, that um, you are real and that you are present with us. And, and Lord, my prayer this morning is that we would make much of you. We would, we would through the, the work of your spirit in our lives, see your greatness and your glory on display in this, in this narrative of the beginning of everything. Lord, please help me, guide my words, may everything that is said and done be for your glory, illuminate us as you see fit. We ask this in Christ's name, amen and amen. Our text this morning, I know that you're going to roll your eyes is Genesis 1, 1 through 31. Now, before you think that we're going to cover every single ounce of that, don't get too excited. I've already been reminded, at our present pace in Genesis, present pace, it's about 15 years to get through this particular book. And I, and I am well aware that we've been in Genesis for a month now, and if you think of it, we're back to... To verse 1, we're actually going backwards at some level. I know you're thinking, wait a minute, but there's a plan here. Lord willing, we have learned, we've got a glimpse of who is God. As he has revealed himself to us through his spoken word. For three solid weeks, we considered what? The glimmerings of the Trinitarian revelation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all present. Last week, we asked the question, who are we? Think about it. This narrative here is written for us. Unlike anything else in all of creation, you and I 
are at the very pinnacle. We are the apex of everything that God has created. We are created, as we saw last week, in the Imago Dei, the image of God. Yes, we know, the psalmist says what in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, but you and I are actually able to reflect his very likeness. Think of this, the reason for our existence, the reason that you have a heartbeat right now is to show off his glory. Yet what has happened? Since the fall, that likeness, that image has been tarnished and ever since then we have lived with the brokenness and the consequences of sin that surround us, which ultimately points us to the means of our only hope. The means of our salvation, our redemption. From the first chapter of the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 1, we saw what the word, Jesus, was present to the very final chapter of the entire Bible. Revelation chapter 22. What? The bright and morning star. Jesus is present. So for right now, for the sake of clarity, to help us learn, Remember, Genesis, what? It's, it's the book of beginnings. It's foundational. What I want us to do this morning is consider how God reveals himself to us through his written word. So today, what I want to do is draw our attention to actually how we read, how we study, and how we interpret scripture. This will impact your study of the word of God. And if you remember, we are called, what? Second Timothy chapter 2, to rightly handle this word that has been given to us. So what I want to do as, as we kind of launch into this, I want to give you a couple major points that as we read, as we interpret scripture, what are the tools to put in our tool belt in order to do that well? Wayne Grudem, who wrote Systematic Theology and Introduction to Biblical Doctrine, just a staple of how we begin to interpret Scripture, actually writes as well specifically to pastors to teach us how to preach the Word in his book with the same title. He he says this. Here's a couple things I want you to hold on to before we read the text. The interpretation of Scripture is not magical. Interpretation of Scripture is not mysterious. Scripture is written in the ordinary language of the day. Every single interpretation, what interpreter has four sources that talk to us, that tell us about the text. Number one is what? It's the the, the meaning, the definition of words and phrases that we have before us. Number two, it's the place of, of the words and the sentences in its context. Number three, it's the overall teaching of Scripture. What is the Word of God telling us? And then it's the historical or cultural setting that it exists in. So what we want to do is we always want to look for reasons rather than mere opinions to give support to a particular interpretation. That's why we always compare Scripture with the rest of Scripture. Hold on to this as well. There is only one meaning for each text. Okay? Well, what Scripture means to me is different than... No, no, no. It's not like that. There's only one meaning for each text, though there are many applications. Notice the kind as well of literature, the genre in which the verse is found. Is it narrative? Is it poetic? Is it prophetic? Is it an epistle? 
Again, Grudem encourages, keep the, the big picture in mind. We're learning how to read scripture and study scripture, and it makes sense to do it right off the gate, right out of the gate. Grudem says, the Bible is a historical document, always asking us key questions. What did the author want the original readers to understand by that statement? What is the author trying to communicate? The original authors want original readers to respond. Always ask, what application does he want to make? Does the author want to make? Remember as well, the whole Bible is about God. Therefore, we always, always, always ask this question. What does the text tell us about God? And the center of the whole Bible is what? Is the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire Old Testament leads up to and points to Christ, and the New Testament flows from him. Therefore, we are to always ask the question, what does this text tell us about the greatness of Christ? We're going to read this in one setting. I, I timed it, okay? Don't get too worried. I had a good clip, about, about three and a half, four minutes. I want you to listen. I want you to look. Hopefully you write in your, in your Bibles or notes. Look for anything that's repeated. Anything that's related. Anything that is emphasized as we learn what is what. A clear understanding of the interpretation of Scripture. Here is the Word of God. Genesis chapter 1. Begin with me in verse 1. <clears throat> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness, and God called the night day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let us separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separate the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing free, fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse and the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. 
And there was evening, there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. and Every winged bird according to its kind. God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. And let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruits. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. It is not uncommon to hear a phrase around Big Woods quite often that we have a high view of God, and we have a high view of Scripture. How is it, when in a sense you don't officially read it, how is it that we have come to, to this conclusion? Let, let me tell you this. It begins right here in the Genesis account. Uh, applying those tools that I just outlined for you, these exact principles, what happens in the text that we just read? Key things surface for us. What type of literature is it? Historical narrative, definition of certain words. What, what, does, what does this text tell us about God? And when I said look for things that are repeated, 31 times. My study Bible is marked. I didn't have enough colors in, in my little pencil box case. 31 times. Speaks about the fact that what? God created, God said, God saw, God called, God made, God separated, God blessed 31 times, six times, and it was so. Four times, and it was good. One time, it was very good. Six times, what? There was evening and there was morning. Seven times, it says, according to their kind. Now, if you recall, 
it was New Year's Day. I know it seems like forever ago that I actually introduced the book of Genesis and I said, direct quote, I said, it's a monumental and a controversial book, end quote. Now, now, to let the proverbial cat out of the bag, it is primarily controversial regarding the interpretation of this particular chapter, Genesis chapter 1. Basically falls into two categories. Is it to be interpreted literally, which means what? Evening and the morning were the first day. Six 24-hour days, knowing that the sun wasn't even created until the what, third, fourth, third day. So, so at some level, there's solar up. At something's happening here. The controversy is, is it literal? Evening and morning were the first day, six 24-hour days, or what? Or is this text to be interpreted figuratively? Which means that the six days are actually symbolic. They're, they're figures of speech. Now to clarify something real quick and just, just sidebar. When I use this term figurative interpretation. I am not referring to atheistic evolution. Okay? Uh, most, I would hope, all... Bible-believing Christians would dismiss atheistic evolution as a, as a belief from the ancients, from Thales to Anaximander to Epicurus to, to Aristotle to Francis Bacon to Descartes, Immanuel Kant. Okay, there's a long list. If you remember a guy by the name of Charles Darwin following his journey on the HMS Beagle, he's the one who really put the face to it. He organized and captured the world's attention. In a sense, atheistic evolution is what God does not exist at all. There is no God. And so all of, all of our existence is simply by accident. It's by chance. Big bang, life from non-life. Order from chaos. And the evolving of what? New species. And we, we're not talking about the fact that there is microevolution. It does take place. We know that from science class of adaptation among species. But not the forming of new species. You have to realize when, when Darwin published Origin of the Species in 1859. He received. He, here's some of the responses from other scientists. He received more abuse than any other theory that basically ever existed. Some scientists use the phrase, a rotten fabric of speculation. Utterly false. Another scientist says, deep in the mire of folly. Another scientist wrote to him and said, I laughed till my sides were sore. And yet, what is interesting here is that, oddly enough, okay, this theory that had begun, we know, as a laughing stock, not only grew into be a major battle in the late 19th century, but with still no actual scientific proof that life comes from non-life or order comes from chaos, it is now somehow widely accepted. Scratch your heads on that one. So when, when I speak of a non-literal figurative interpretation of Genesis. I'm not speaking about that. Atheistic evolution. But more toward a, what we refer to today as a theistic 
evolution or progressive creationism, which generally allows for, and there's multiple theories, but, but generally they fall into to two categories. Number one is the, the day-age theory. The belief that the days spoken of that we just read of in Genesis chapter 1 are sequential periods of time, not literal 24-hour days. Each day, therefore, is thought to represent a much longer, albeit kind of undefined, period. Such as a million or millions of years. This is rooted in an effort to harmonize our understanding of the Bible with what appears to be overwhelming scientific evidence of an old earth. And you can see evidence at some level, adherents of this day-age theory often point out the word here for day in Hebrew is yom. Some, sometimes it does. It refers to a period of time that is longer than a 24-hour day. In fact, it actually happens in this creative narrative. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. The entire explanation is described as what? The account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day, yom, in the day that the Lord had made heaven and earth. And also we see what? God's warning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, when he warns that the man will die in the day that he eats from the tree. And we know that that's not a literal day. Adam and Eve actually live quite long. And, and so there's, there's one kind of progressive creationist or theistic evolution of the day-age theory. There's another one that's, that's primary. It's called the gap theory, the view that God created a fully functional earth with animals and plants and dinosaurs. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then the theory goes, something happened. Something happened to destroy everything that God had created. And destroyed it completely. Most likely the fall of Satan or the rebellion. So that the planet became without form and void. As we read in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. At that point, God started all over again recreating earth in its paradise form as further described in the book of Genesis. This is also called old earth creationism or gap creationism or the ruin reconstruction theory. Now that is a really high level view. Okay, and there are, are, are dozens of interpretations and variations of all of these theories. But you can be assured of this. Make a clear statement. There is disagreement I want to acknowledge that. There is disagreement amongst Bible-believing Christians on this topic. And oftentimes, particularly because it's foundational, there is great emotion to who's right and to who's wrong. E even to the point of condemning a brother or sister in the Lord who does not interpret or understand Genesis chapter 1 in the same way that they do. So what do we do with that? We could spend <clears throat> a lot of time arguing on why you, your view, why you are right and everyone else is wrong debating the evidence of the fossil record. You could spend a lot of time doing that. You, you could spend a lot of time trying to scientifically explain precisely how God created 
something out of nothing, but we're not told how he do it, how he did it. But according to the Genesis record, he spoke it. He spoke it into existence. We spend a lot of time doing that, or, or this is what I would propose. Using the tools for interpretation, personally examine Scripture. And, and see how a literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 1 establishes what I call a high view of God. A high view of Scripture, rather than erodes, kind of takes chunks out from that. Two points I want to give to you this morning. The first one is this, a literal interpretation of Genesis. And a couple kind of sub-points here establishes an orthodox understanding of bibliology. This is, this is what we understand about God's Word. Now, how, how do we come to that? Like, this a literal interpretation establishes a foundation here. Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 1. And I love, Peter's just an emphasis guy. He, he wrote, like, like I, a lot of exclamation points. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Know this, first of all. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. You understand what's happening here? Everything rests upon an orthodox understanding of our bibliology when we look at a literal interpretation. Secondly, what? It establishes a foundation to interpret Scripture in like manner unless we're directed otherwise. For example, there's metaphors all the way through hundreds and hundreds of them. Jesus says, I am the bread. Does that mean Jesus is a loaf of bread? No. I am the door. These are metaphors. Okay, we're instructed that way in that particular context. A literal interpretation of Genesis 1 thirdly establishes God as the only one, the only one, who, who doesn't need to rely upon the limits of science to describe him or to define him. Now think of this. If we stay within the context of clear and simple rules of interpretation, tools as I've outlined them, what is this text telling us about God? And I think, now, I think, it's, I think the obvious is pretty obvious. God is both the object and the subject. It's about him, and it's what? And he's the one that's doing all of this. Now, we, we know, like, wait a minute. Yeah, but, like, what about, like, it looks pretty old. When, when God created mankind, Adam and Eve, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, do you think that they were created as, as babies? Are babies able to, are little tiny children? No. They were, they were grown adults. They were ready to be fruitful and to multiply. It's pretty obvious. If there was a tree that was created in the Garden of Eden, and, and you were to cut down the tree, okay, could you count the rings on it? Yeah. 
It, it, same thing as a rock. Like the same principle applies here. What is happening is this. God is beyond comprehension. He, he is literally creating everything out of nothing at the precise age that he wants it. And that is what? Beyond comprehension. Now, I, I want to also say this. And I want to say emphatically. But I want to say as gently and as kindly and as sweetly as possible. You, bet, you better get used to it. You, 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 you better get used to what? A God that is beyond comprehension. And, and the reason that you need to get used to this is, is that if you're, you're going to question and you're going to doubt and you're going to wonder and try to scientifically explain precisely how God created in such a way that your finite mind can fully fathom an infinite God, then you're going to really, really, really struggle when the Red Sea parts and what people walk through on dry land. And I've heard the argument, it's actually it's just a couple inches, and there was a drought that year. The most powerful army in the entire world all drowned in like three inches of water? You're going to really struggle with what? With God speaking, revealing through what? A bush that's on fire, but it's not being burned up. Oh, spontaneous combustion, you understand the temperature, of the come now. You're going to really struggle, and we can just go on and on. Manna falling from heaven. And, and, and what do we hear? Let me tell you this. You, you're going to really, really struggle. The fact that Jesus walks on water. And I've heard the argument. It was just frozen. He was out ice skating. You're going to struggle with the fact that Jesus turns water into wine. You're going to struggle with the fact that, that, that Jesus touched and, and spoke to and healed blind people. They could not see, and now they're able to see. You're, you're going to really struggle with a person who hadn't taken a step their entire life. Get up and, and walk. And I tell you what, you are really, you're going to really, really struggle when Jesus literally comes back to life after literally suffering in agony and literally being beat and tortured to death, literally being buried, literally laying there three days and literally coming back to life again. You're going to struggle with that. And need I remind you, what does the rest of Scripture say? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if Christ has not been raised... He was just unconscious. No, these were professional executioners. They knew how to execute. It wasn't a fainting spell. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Then our entire faith, your faith is in vain. It literally translates, it's void, it's useless. Empty the building, lock the doors, turn off the lights, there's no need. There's no need. Yet you have to understand, the, the entirety of the gospel, yes, yes, 
totally, it is God's sovereign grace upon our lives, calling us and drawing us. He has done everything that is necessary. At some level, there is still a responsibility for us to have to take a step of faith in a God that is simply beyond comprehension. Scripture is filled. Scripture is filled. Job chapter 5 and verse 9. Who does great and unsearchable things? I love this. Wonders beyond number. I, I, I know the answer to that question. Like the kids got it. I, I know the answer to that question. And it's not some lie that people are pushing, just, just to try to escape and erase the existence of a sovereign creator and sovereign savior. Job chapter 11, can, can you discover the depths of God? Job chapter 11, verse 7, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? Uh, I, I know the answer to that question. No. Romans chapter 11, verse 33, 34, oh, the depth. I love this. Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? I know the answer to that question, too. No one. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. At some level, I kind of insert back of the bus, Boger, like try to figure out this, like God's plan. My thoughts, he's making it very clear, are not like the way you think. Nor are my ways your ways. Praise God for that. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts than your thoughts. Our, our faith, your faith in a, in a great God has got to start somewhere. And let me, let, me, let me tell you this. I would propose to you, I strongly suggest, I emphatically, as politely as I possibly can say, it better start right here in Genesis chapter 1. Psalm chapter 9 says, those who know your name put their trust in you. I don't want a God that can be explained. Um, Sir Isaac Newton, 17th century mathematician and philosopher, had a, had a mechanical, listen to this, I love this, had a mechanical replica of our solar system made in miniature. You know, like scientists are a little bit, you know, loose, and so he had to see this. Sir Isaac Newton. A mechanical replica of our solar system. At its center was a large golden ball representing the sun, and revolving around it were smaller spheres attached to the ends of rods of varying lengths, and they represented Mercury and Venus and Earth and Mars and the other planets. These were all geared together by cogs and by belts to make them move around the sun in perfect harmony. 
One day, as Newton was studying the model, an unbelieving friend stopped by for a visit, marveling at the device, watching as the scientists made the heavenly bodies move in their orbits. The man exclaimed, My goodness, Newton, what an exquisite thing! Who made this for you? Without even looking up, Sir Isaac Newton replied, Nobody? Nobody? His friend asked, that's right. I said, nobody. All of these balls and cogs and belts and gears just happened to come together and the wonder of wonders by chance they began revolving in their set orbits with perfect timing. His friend undoubtedly got the point. The existence of Newton's machine presupposed a maker and even more so the earth and its perfectly ordered solar system. You see, it, it, it can't happen. Like, you can't use nothing. Think, if, if, if what the plain, literal meaning, and God said, phrase, plain, literal meaning, it was so. Plain, literal meaning, interpretation, evening and morning. If that plain, literal meaning is not what Moses meant, then can we trust anything else that Moses wrote down and recorded in the book of Genesis or the book of Exodus or the book of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Or even, even more importantly, we can ask the question, how, how can we trust what God said to any of the other authors of Scripture as being literally true? If what he said to Moses here is not to be taken literally. I think, I think it is important, most important, when we hear, when we see, and we read a word, a phrase, repeat it, we will see, Lord willing, what? The importance, the significance of this section. And it sets the focus where it should be, or I could say even more importantly, it sets the focus on who we should be focusing on. Yet for many, for many it, it does not. Rather, it causes many to even question him. Not, not only question him, but certainly question his word. What do we do with that? Very quickly, in closing, a non-literal interpretation of Genesis 1, let me make it very clear, erodes a consistency of how one interprets Scripture. Definition of words, they go out the window. Keeping within the context, the genre, it, it, it's, you have to toss that. A non-literal interpretation erodes confidence in taking God at his word. If creation is not literal, what about the flood? What about the Tower of Babel? Or, or wait a minute. What about the virgin birth? That's pretty immaculate. What, what about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The ascension of Jesus Christ? What about, do we expect his return or not? You, you understand why this is absolutely foundational. Thirdly, and finally, a non-literal interpretation of Genesis erodes meanings to compare Scripture with the rest of Scripture. We have to ask, what is he really saying? And, and if he's not really saying that, what hope do we have? 
just a, just a simple other texts of scripture align with exodus chapter 20 remember remember the the giving of the 10 commandments talks about in six days the lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and he rested on the seventh day Next week, I'm so excited to preach about Sabbath day and Sabbath rest. Did he rest for a million years? You have to look at the rest of Scripture in totality. If the creation account is not literally true, it was what just Moses' conjecture, or else it was a myth that had just kind of been passed down through the ages. If what we read in Genesis chapter 1 is not literally true, I would propose that it makes a significant, significant difference and challenge for any Bible-believing Christian. Therefore, what? I, I, I don't know who said this. I've been quoting this for, for years. I would just say decades. And I even look to find who said this. So I'm just going to claim it. No. Listen to this. Write this down. Write this down. To move away from the pages of Scripture. To move away from the pages of Scripture is to move into the wastelands of utter subjectivity. Anything goes. Therefore, what? We, we actually sang, and I was so thankful, Pastor and let us, that, that we need that faith. Lord, give me that faith. That is spirit-born. Okay, and I'm not, I'm, okay, this is not easy. Like, everything, like, just with spoken word, there's a lot of faith that is demanded. It's beyond us. And so my prayer is that we would pray. If you're kind of, like, wrestling and, like, hovering, like, this is, I don't know if I can accept this. Like, this changes everything. Like, I learned in science class in eighth grade. That a, that a monkey became a man. No, this is foundational. And so that's why our, 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 our goal, our objective is to pray, God, please open my mind, open my heart to trust you. To trust all of you and to trust all of your word. We get that. I tell you what, there's hope. There's hope for a broken and a messed up world and that hope is found in the cross and the death, the burial, and the literal resurrection of Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we love you, and we are, we are dealing with some really heavy, heavy things here. I, I pray, Lord, that you would grant us the faith that is needed. Help us. Father, even as we, we move into a time of Q&A, as I'm certain that people have questions about this, Lord, encourage them to ask the question. Let's see what your word says and learn together to glorify you. As we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Bless us. We need your blessing. In your name we pray. Amen.